a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you are a uh, first-time wrong thinker, first of all, I applaud you for finding the courage to click on uh, the app or to uh, dial us in on the radio or to listen to the podcast. This is not for the faint-hearted. And it's not because, man, we're going to go so far down that rabbit hole that you're never going to see daylight again. It's more a matter of if you are willing to question the narrative, you better have pretty thick skin because it's going to make people uncomfortable. Some of them will be a little bit angry. But most importantly, you've just you've got to be willing to march out of step with a crowd that prides itself on marching in lockstep. And this isn't uh, due to the fact that we're so much smarter than them and you know everybody else is stupid and everybody else is evil. It's just a matter of there are an awful lot of people, good people, you and I included, who at various points in our life allow ourselves to just kind of go with the flow, drift with the current, believe whatever we're told by those who shape the narratives around us. The danger is those narratives can lead us to places where we really don't want to go. And that's what this program is about. This is about challenging the narrative, learning how to propaganda-proof yourself. And then, when you have found truth and you have uh, you know, determined, you, you've sussed it out and determined this is actually you know, something I can hang my hat on, to stand for it and to speak the truth, even if your voice shakes, to be a source of light for the other people who are looking for that uh, that that illumination. It's not about uh, you know being right. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about helping each other find our way home in the dark. And I'm very happy to be a part of that. In fact, I I find a great purpose in that. And by the way, that doesn't mean I found my way home and now I'm you know trying to ring the dinner bell and get the rest of you yahoos you know there. Um, I'm still very much in the process of finding my way home as well. But thankfully, I've had some very amazing mentors who have have left trail markers along the way and otherwise helped point me toward the truth and allowed me to come to the truth at my own pace rather than, you know, hitting me in the face with an ice cold bucket of it and expecting me to thank them. You see the difference? Anyway, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by HSLAmmo.com, also by Pure-Light.com. And by our friends at uh, MonticelloCollege.org, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. So, one of the toughest things to do is to admit when we have been duped. Oh no, I struggle with it too. It's, it's really, it's tough. I don't want to admit I was wrong, and even worse, I don't want to admit to myself that, oh man, I totally bought that i bought that hook line and sinker because then i feel stupid nobody has to even point a finger i'm like oh how could i have been so dumb come on tell me we haven't all said those words to ourselves at some point well i've got an example here from ari shulman which uh, sadly i think most of us can relate to it's an article called dance till we die 
why COVID security theater failed. Did I get that right? Yes. Why COVID security theater failed and why we played along with it even when it didn't make sense. Ari Shulman says, even as the war against COVID draws to an uneasy close, its skirmishes continue all around us. One of them is the ongoing irritant of COVID security theater. Now, COVID security theaters, when we claim our actions are aimed at fighting COVID, but actually part of our motivation is just to give the impression that we're fighting COVID. Genuinely fighting COVID may or may not be one of our goals, but what makes theater theater is that performance, acting, is one of our goals. So for the last year, Ari Shulman says we have worn masks in restaurants unless we're sitting down. We've stayed six feet apart, whether we're running on by on the sidewalk or sitting at a table away or sitting one table away inside for hours. We've stood behind plastic barriers at the DMV and the checkout counter, even though we know COVID floats in the air. Now, many of these measures may linger for months or conceivably years past the end of the pandemic itself. But the stink of absurdity will linger in our memories for longer. In fact, security theater is a visible everyday reminder that something in our country's pandemic response went awry. But there's a way to see the idea of security theater as a sensible one. A recognition that the response to a pandemic must happen on a social rather than an individual level. We can imagine a theater that might have been and that we might have been grateful for. And here Ari Shulman writes about a collective response. Saying what the behavioral rules American society settled on during COVID. A mind attuned to contradiction and rationalization could hear a cacophony enough to go mad. But of course, the standards of a prudent response could not have been those of a philosophy seminar. We were not dealing with falls from ladders or radon poisoning, threats that confront us at the individual level and can be answered in kind. Rather, the core task in stopping COVID was to prevent infection, a task inherently social in scope. Masking, distancing, crowd limits, even vaccinations. The benefit these tactics offer to any individual depends to a great degree on whether that individual's group is also using them. Put another way, unlike, say, a decision about the best treatment to give a patient already infected, and to some extent even unlike preventing a difficult-to-transmit virus like HIV, stopping COVID was unavoidably a communal activity. So, like it or not, this is the physical reality of highly contagious infections. Responding to a threat at group level is, with apologies for the analyst lingo, a collective action problem. Theater fulfills useful functions in responding to such a problem, and here's why. Theater reduces the burden of making sense of a constantly shifting, conflicting, and uncertain mass of information by coordinating decision-making, conveying a sense of, this is the way our country, our city, our school is handling this, handling this, rather. For measures that work well only if most of the group opts in, like masking and distancing, theater ensures a quorum, showing that it's worthwhile for individuals to participate because enough of the group is participating. Theater offers solidarity. You're not bearing the burdens of these restrictions and the pain of the virus alone. We're all in this together. We're all doing our part. Theater simplifies permission structures, offering some sense of what's expected in social settings, what's allowed, what is optional. This reduces the burdens of recreating social codes from scratch with each interaction. In principle, Ari Shulman says theater can also set limits on the burdens we are not willing to bear. 
It can create collective permission to relinquish measures like school closures that could have some effect but are just too costly and where the benefits of relinquishment can only be realized if most people agree to opt out. Now, the knocks against the phoniness of security theater are obvious, but there is such a thing as good theater, particularly once we recognize the performance involved in our response as a whole, and not just the actions we take, but the ones we decide not to. Against a threat like COVID, good theater was needed. Shulman says what matters in a collective response isn't achieving some perfectly consistent principle to order all behavior, but just whether the general program helps achieve good enough behavior, good enough to produce a significantly better outcome than if it was not present, while setting limits on itself and balancing against other considerations. So from this perspective, we should, for example, not feel bothered by the mild absurdity of wearing masks when we stand up in a restaurant, but not when we sit down. We understand that there's an element of pretend here. We pretend it's totally safe to unmask when we sit down. And we pretend that masking for the 20-foot trip from the table to the door is really accomplishing something. But this is an example of good theater. It's part of the overall approach that helps achieve a better-than-the-alternative outcome while also cutting us some breaks. Shulman says a program of good COVID security theater would be eager to find these balances and bargains. Understanding that the budget for pain is limited, it would focus on just a few measures that hit the sweet spot of being pretty effective, true mask testing, or pretty easy, indoor cloth masking, or both, vaccinations, indoor N95 masking. While eagerly seeking to relinquish measures that achieve little, this would be things like outdoor masking, beach shaming, restrictions even after a vaccination, or that are so simply, simply so painful that beyond a certain point, is not even worth debating whether they benefit the group, like school closures. In other words, good COVID theater would be willing to cut or eager to cut deals. Instead of warning direly that even after max vaccination, we don't know whether restrictions can go away or vacillating behind talk of a new normal, it would hone a message of getting most people vaccinated is the path to a new normal, or to normal, rather. So instead of fretting about risks outdoors, it would eagerly seek out the evidence showing how poorly COVID transmits outside and encourage going mask-free outdoors as a worthy way to balance the hassle of masking indoors. I hope this is making sense to you. This really caught my attention yesterday. We'll come back to Ari Shulman's article, Just the Other Side of These Messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Ari Shulman. This was published on thenewatlantis.com. Dance until we die. And Ari Shulman is describing the security, let's see, the COVID security theater. Ways we pretended that we were doing the right thing. Even though we we maybe wondered or sometimes just outright knew this is kind of ridiculous, you know, the whole wearing a mask to your table at the restaurant and then sitting down and ha, voila, I'm safe to take off my mask. People did it without too much of a second thought. And, 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 And Shulman says, look, good COVID theater, the kind that would get people participating, has to be willing to cut deals. So instead of warning that we're not absolutely certain mass vaccination would eliminate all risk, 
well, if you were doing it right, it would, this uh, kind of COVID security theater would just recognize that in a world of mass vaccination, risk would, by any sober estimate, be vastly lower than a, in a world without. And it would accept whatever threat still remained as the price to pay to boost the incentive for mass vaccination now. Now, remember, Shulman's describing, you know, the ideal. This is how it could have been handled. And, and I agree. This, I mean, it still would have been different, but it, it wouldn't have been with it wouldn't have been like what we wound up with. So here's the kind of security theater that we wound up with. Shulman says we invested enormous cultural energy into shaming those who don't mask and put little focus on how well the masks we chose actually worked. Our answer to mask skeptics has not been, well, let's make sure everyone understands how much better N95 masks are, invest heavily in programs to mass manufacture and distribute them, and then let ourselves off the hook about outdoor masking. But if you don't, if you don't wear that mask, you're a murderer. Okay, that's a good point. Also, there's the matter of surface cleaning, understood for the better part of a year to be of limited use, but it's remained key to signaling adherence to safety in restaurants, hotels, schools, public transportation. I've seen this at church, by the way, often requiring shutting down everything to do so. Brothers and sisters, the chapel has been sanitized for your protection. Yeah. See, effective ventilation and air filtration understood for just as long to likely be a powerful tool and possibly easier and cheaper than constant cleaning was largely ignored in our discourse and government guidance. Also from January onward, key public health messengers voiced constant doubts about whether vaccination would do much of anything to lift restrictions. In April, Anthony Fauci fretted, I don't think I would, even if I'm vaccinated, go into an indoor crowded place where people are not wearing masks. Notable media figures like Jonathan Capehart and Joy Ann Reed said they would keep masking and would not resume normal activities after getting vaccinated. And as late as May, even the CDC recommended, recommended rather that people should continue wearing masks in most situations, even after getting vaccinated. Now, that last example is worth lingering on. COVID vaccines, remarkably effective and created in record time, are as close as one gets in public affairs to a magic bullet. I mean, a once-in-a-generation technological solution to a grueling medical, economic, and political crisis. Yet somehow we wound up with public health influencers voicing more doubts about what vaccines would achieve than they ever did about masking and lockdowns. Now, this is odd, to say the least. It's very much as if the COVID theater we got ultimately forgot that actually ending COVID was its aim. So here are a few ways to think about what went wrong with COVID security theater. First of all, it, pri- it has prioritized the visible over the invisible. In other words, it prefers measures we can see, surface cleaning, masking, distancing, lockdowns, where we can easily tell whether someone's in compliance or not. Our COVID theater is less interested in measures we can't see, even ones that could be highly effective, like HEPA filtration in central air, central air systems, emphasizing N95s as highly preferable to cloth, cloth masks. It's also spoken in individual, not group terms. We've heard, vaccination will protect you. Vaccination will protect those you care about. And you're a selfish wingnut if you don't get vaccinated. The grounds on which individuals can understandably enough object to these messages are ample. What if I'm low risk and all my high risk loved ones are vaccinated? What if I just want to stick it to people who seem mostly interested in shaming me and telling me how to live? 
The point here being what we too often didn't hear when public health messengers explained why individuals should choose to get vaccinated was vaccination is the way to bring the COVID era and all that goes with it to an end. Vaccination is what we must do to end the entire situation. And that means most of us, most of us rather must need to do it. And yet the approach that we've seen has been terrified of individual judgment. Despite stating risks and and benefits in individualistic terms, our security theater has tended to offer rules that must be followed instead of rules of thumb to help people reduce risk to the group. Now, some of these rules have been useful, some probably not, some possibly even counterproductive. Consider a simple rule of thumb that public health messaging could have offered that might have done a great deal to reduce risk to individuals and the group. Dodge the smoke. Because COVID floats in the air, imagine, if you would, situations in which you would expect to get a high dose of secondhand smoke if people around you were smoking. And then take actions to keep your dosage low. Instead, we've gotten a six-foot rule which takes no account whatsoever of crowd density, outdoor versus indoor setting, wind and ventilation, or masking. It's probably pointless outside, and perhaps worse than pointless inside when it rationalizes, people feel safe sitting six feet apart for hours on end. But, of course, rules of thumb depend on judgment rather than compliance and offer no straightforward way to determine whether other people are following them. It's also justified itself with dubiously scientific rationalizations. Now, examples here are endless, but consider the shifting messaging on masks. There was always a compelling rationale for masking on the grounds of prudence, which went something like this. It probably helps at least a little. In some conditions, it may help quite a lot. It's a lot less of a burden than other options on the table, so it's worth making it part of our arsenal. But also, let's fast-track research that will help us better understand how well it works and emphasize that cloth masking is a stopgap on the path to mass use of N95s, which we know do work very well. Instead, we got this interminable culture war over masking in general, over whether science already showed that it was magically effective or a complete hoax. In other words, the absolutism of masking advice was bad theater, fueling more opposition than it needed to. It created lock-in. Leaders could have offered sensible shifts in prudential guidance as the pandemic progressed, based in part on changing conditions on the ground, in part on the public's level of exhaustion, in part on on, uh, evolving research. But instead, at each stage, they ended up having to create a narrative about new science emerging. Hence the absurd displays of the CDC being reliably months behind more sober-minded observers in shifting its advice on an array of issues. From adopting masking to dropping the need for surface cleaning, for dropping the need for outdoor masking, to acknowledging that COVID transmits through air. So the problem here is it's been all shaming and no bargaining, all carrot, no stick. Now, there's more to this article. I'll, I'll leave it to you to check it out. But you've got, to, you've got to take into account that at some level, people were taking advantage of this. And I know this is a tough thing for people to get their minds around. I mean, I'm not telling you you need to be more conspiratorial. You need to be more suspicious, you know, a little more paranoid about what's going on. Isn't it obvious from the number of, uh, for instance, governors, Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Governor Gavin Newsom in California, even Governor Spencer Cox, supposedly a conservative in the state of Utah, very reluctant to give up their emergency powers. 
It's like they got a little taste of power and they liked it. That's a real danger as well. You know, pandemic aside, too much power in the wrong hands, meaning government hands, has always been the recipe for the greatest amount of human suffering and uh, death and destruction. I'll have a link to this article from Ari Shulman, editor of The New Atlantis. Dance Till We Die. It's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Check it out. These are the show notes for June 30th, 2021. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast. Consider becoming a supporter of the podcast. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a very quick shout out to one of our great sponsors. That would be the uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And I want you to know that uh, this is this is where you need to go if you are going to be uh, purchasing a home. If, you, if you're one of the people who is, uh, shall we say, uh, involved in um, purchasing a home here in the Intermountain West, holy cow, it's such a crazy time to be looking for a home because so many people are moving here. The competition is fierce. If you don't have your financing squared away right now, like when you find the home of your dreams, it uh, is going to be sold before you can turn around. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Decades of experience in the lending industry. Heather clearly understands the ins and outs of what not just the lenders, but also the borrowers need. She's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even refinancing your existing home loan. These are the folks you want to talk to. Now, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can call 435-703-4522 to contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're also located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah, Tower 1 and 2. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Back to the program. I've been told that I seem to have an axe to grind with the media. You know what's really funny, what's a little bit awkward is um, I was I was told that once during an interview with a, a very prominent part of the uh, heritage media as I was interviewing for a potential job. At the time, I really, really wanted that job. Now I look back and I'm really grateful that I didn't get it because I think I would have been fitted for a gag and I think I would have been miserable. I, I don't think it uh, I don't think it would have worked. And, and uh, I'm not naming names. I'm just going to say it was it was awkward, though, being as well. It looks like you have kind of an axe to grind with the heritage media. Well, to the extent that our corporate media is actively working to mislead or deceive us. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do have an axe to grind. But it's not just a matter of ideological disagreement. I see the the deception and the deflection and misinformation that is is being presented or the misleading information that's being presented taking us into a more authoritarian mindset and into a more authoritarian society and 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 wokeism is a part of this so i i have a real problem with that i saw a great article from annie holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org 
titled, The Media May Be Responsible for Countless COVID Deaths. Now, I want you to understand, this is not just a matter of, you know, let's blame them for everything. I want you to hear what Annie Holmquist has to say here. I don't think she's wrong. She says, last year, I wrote about a personal bout with COVID-19 and how it changed my perspective and gave me hope that the pandemic wasn't as dire as many made it out to be. Now, she says, my perspective changed in part thanks to a private practice doctor who had great success in treating COVID. According to him, COVID, if treated early and with a cocktail of various drugs, isn't the death sentence we've been told it was. As time goes on, she says, it becomes apparent that my doctor friend isn't the only physician who has this knowledge. The now well-known COVID hunter, Dr. Joseph Barron, has uh, Varon rather has been interviewed hundreds of times on various media networks highlighting the good doctor's faithfulness and success in saving patients infected with covid these interviews however left out a key component of Varon's success and not because he's tried to hide his secret from the public instead Varon's experience shows how both the news media and social media platforms censor truth spinning stories away from good news and toward fearmongering Varon's story came to light in an interview done by former Fox News reporter Ivory Hecker. You've heard that name, right? Hecker recently blew the whistle on her Fox station, documenting how she was reprimanded for reporting on positive news regarding drugs such as hydroxychloroquine. Not surprisingly, Hecker was fired for this whistleblowing action and has now produced an in-depth interview with Varon in order to present the truth she was not allowed to report on months ago. According to Hecker, the death rate for patients under Varon's care is about half that of the inpatient hospital death rate reported by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, the reason for this success is dedicated to Varon's use of the Math Plus Protocol, along with drugs which must not be named, otherwise known as hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. While Varon has begun to phase out the former due to pressure over its political disfavor, He recently co-authored peer-reviewed research in the American Journal of Therapeutics on the effectiveness of ivermectin. One of his co-authors, Dr. Pierre Corey, says that the United States is in a media lockdown over the potentially life-saving information presented in this research, even though there is much interest among the general public. Besides facing media censorship during interviews over the effectiveness of this treatment plan, Varon says he also has experienced censorship on social media noting, every time I use the word ivermectin, I go to Facebook jail. When asked if more lives would be saved if word got out about the effectiveness of these drugs, Varon adamantly responded in the affirmative, but then asked, how can the word get out if he who's given over 1,600 media interviews in recent months can't even get the message through the media gauntlet? Now, Annie Holmquist says the media likely has blood on their hands all because they seem afraid of ideas contrary to those of our ruling elite. Instead, they prey upon the fears of the general public in order to keep us in line. American journalist H.L. Mencken described the press in our country very well when he said that its defining features were its incurable fear of ideas, its constant effort to evade the discussion of fundamentals by translating all issues into a few fundamental fears, its incessant reduction of all reflection to mere emotion. Here's some more of what Mencken had to say in his tirade against the American press. It is, in the true sense, never well-informed. It is seldom intelligent, save in the arts of the mob master. It is never courageously honest. 
held harshly to a rigid correctness of opinion by the plutocracy that controls it with less and less attempt at disguise and menaced on all sides by censorships that it dare not flout. It sinks rapidly into formalism and feebleness. For it is upon the emotions of the mob, of course, that the whole comedy is played. End quote. Annie Holmquist says the motive of the press, Mencken writes, is to keep the public in line for the purposes of the ruling elites. And because the press knows the public craves safety above all else, they use fear to accomplish their mission. Now, she says clearly the methods of the press haven't changed since Mencken's day, especially given Hecker's concluding thought at the end of her interview with Varon. She notes that the emergency authorization of the vaccine couldn't have happened if there was a drug that effectively treated COVID-19. And she asks, could that have been part of the motivation for the strange censorship of certain COVID-19 treatments that we've witnessed over the past year at news and social media corporations? Annie Holmquist says that's a worthwhile question to ask and something we should keep in mind as we process the diet the media feeds us. Our best interests are not always theirs. The public that only craves safety, never asks questions, and does as it's told will play right into the hands of the media and the elites they serve, eventually even threatening the same safety that the public so desires. Pow! (laughs) I mean, she landed that one right on the money. So there you have it. That's that's one of the reasons why I have beef with, uh, with the corporate media. I do believe that they have become stenographers for those in power and narrative managers for the ruling class or the political class. Therefore, what they share with us is not meant to inform us. I think it's meant to keep us in line, keep us fearful, keep us off center and, and unbalanced so that we don't know which way can I turn, what's safe, what, what's allowable. This just brings me back to something that uh, this is this is a, a horse I've been beating for quite some time. You're not going to find any perfect media source. No, not even this one. If you are serious about making sense of the world around you, my friend, what you've got to do is be willing to learn how to order your thinking, not what to think. But you've got to become propaganda proof in the sense that you've got to train your mind to ask the right questions. And it can be simple stuff, at least starting out, you, you know, learning basic logic. I had, a, had an attorney, a recent, I'm sorry, a recent graduate of law school. I don't think he's passed the bar yet, but brilliant young man who explained this. He says, basic logic is a really good place to start. You don't have to get deep into Boolean logic, you know, and, and you know, doing these uh, algebraic equations all over the place. But you have to be willing to ask the kind of questions that they clarify who benefits from this. Is it a sound argument? Is it unsound? And again, I feel like I need to reiterate, this isn't about being the smartest person in the room. This isn't about uh, effortlessly winning every single discussion that you engage in. It's about putting your mind to use, knowing how to get a more complete picture of what's at stake so that you can move forward with some confidence. But you got to learn to trust yourself, right? I mean, how many industries are devoted to reminding us you're broken, you're not good enough? Only an expert can tell you that. You can trust yourself. You can trust yourself. So let's become propaganda proof. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I mentioned this in uh, one of the earlier segments, but I'm going to ask you, please consider taking a look at my, sh- my daily show notes. Now, when I, when I publish an episode of the podcast, um, I put in links to the show notes. Within the show notes, you will find links to each and every article or each and every commentator that, uh, that is featured. If I have guests, I'll have links to, to their cause as well. I'm asking you, if you're serious about becoming a more clear and independent thinker, to take the time to research it for yourself. And I don't just mean a cursory, I googled it, therefore I am an expert now. I don't mean to sound petty, but uh, I've I've heard of more than a few um, talk hosts, particularly, who think that uh, one or two Googled articles, and by gosh, I've really researched this. Now you've started your research, but you know if if you haven't uh, if you haven't done your due diligence, you know your knowledge is very very shallow. It could be a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. You got to have some depth as well as breadth, and that takes time. There's no shortcut. I'm sorry, there isn't. And I don't want to sound like I'm obsessive, but maybe I am. I spend pretty much every free moment that I have learning and following up on things that are of interest to me or things that I feel like it would be in my interest to better understand. It doesn't make me an expert on everything, but before I go putting my neck out there and saying, hey, here's here's the way I think this came down, I'm at least going to try to do the best I can to vet that information before sharing it. Because I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to be misled myself. I guess what I'm putting out, pointing out here is I, I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. And I make these resources for wrong thinkers available right there on the website in the daily show notes. But you've got to be the one who's serious about uh, getting to the bottom of things. And that's going to require, you know, go into the articles. Usually there are, are links and supporting documents and other resources that it can link you to. They can really enlarge your understanding. And even if you don't agree, it's still great to have a broader perspective from which to understand a lot of these issues. All right, let me hop off the soapbox. Saw an article here. This came in my uh, email box yesterday. What bit, why Bitcoiners are doing what libertarians never could. Now, this is from Paul Rosenberg. And this is a guy whose point of view I respect immensely. And when I first read that headline, I went, whoa, Paul taking a swipe at the libertarians but he right off the bat he says look i'm not trying to insult libertarians they've been right or reasonably close to right on most everything and for decades on end that's not a trivial thing nonetheless he says they could never get much moving in the world while bitcoiners to use an old but fitting phrase are turning the world upside down and he says i think it's important to understand why so he talks about the difference between saying and doing And the first thing he does is he asks, can you name a libertarian martyr? Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'm not sure I can. And I've been involved with libertarian things for a long time. There have been a few anti-tax protesters, but they weren't actually libertarian martyrs, largely because libertarianism excluded them. Now, shall we name the martyrs for the causes of Bitcoin and cypherpunk ideals? He says, that list, as most of us know, is long. We can start with Julian Assange and Ross Ulbricht, and we can go from there to Charlie Shrem, near misses like Phil Zimmerman, and a dozen lesser-known names. By the way, I only recognized Julian Assange and Ross Ulbricht. Ulbricht, Ulbricht rather. I uh, not familiar. With, I'm not familiar with Charlie Shrem or Phil Zimmerman. But the point here, 
according to Paul Rosenberg, is martyrdom doesn't prove too much, of course. Thugs will destroy for many reasons, but there is a clue here, and it's this. Libertarians didn't threaten very much. In other words, the powers that be never loved them, of course, but publishing policy papers didn't really overturn very many apple carts. Okay, now here's where the rubber meets the road. He says, to be very frank about this and with apologies for doing so, he says, libertarianism is a philosophy of intellectuals who wish to change the world without risk or suffering. That is, they imagined they were smart enough to do it by intellect alone. And he says, again, I apologize, but the truth is what it is. And libertarians have never wanted to suffer. In fact, he says, in my experience, they see suffering as a failure and sometimes as evidence of inferior intellect. Bitcoiners, on the other hand, see suffering as bad luck, as clear proof that the status quo is a beast and that it must be overridden for the sake of posterity. Now, ultimately, this difference comes down to the difference between talking and doing. So talking may have its place, but it can never replace doing. Acting changes you in a way that talking simply cannot. And it very clearly changes the world in a way that talking cannot. Bitcoiners are doers. And they are overturning the world. He says it is the active that changes the world. Those who persist in activeness or in activity will drive the future. No one else does. He says, please consider a passage from historian Francosius Guizot as he was examining the collapse of Rome and the rise of Christian Europe. Quote, the clergy alone were strong and animated. They became everywhere powerful, such as the law of the universe. End quote. And so it is. Paul Rosenberg says that which is persistently strong and animated gets its way. That which is apathetic floats along in currents created by others or sometimes just sinks. From here, he talks about how Bitcoin is a gateway drug of sorts. He says, you know, they used to warn teenagers that cannabis was a gateway drug, that once you smoked it, you'd begin a dark slide into heroin addiction. Now, that was false, of course, but Bitcoin really is a kind of gateway drug. People tend to come for the exchange rate increases, but if they stay long enough to grasp what, what Bitcoin does, they become radicals. The reason is, once people understand that Bitcoin creates trust in a decentralized way with no trusted party, read Overlord, they begin to see that decentralization is valid and then that it's superior, vastly superior. After that, Bitcoiners slip into rhapsodizing. In fact, find almost any Bitcoiner and ask a question or two and they will light up, buy you a meal and talk to you for an hour. Bitcoiners persist in this, even as every power in the world tries to scare people away from them. Now, when Bitcoiners get kicked in the gut by the aforementioned world powers, as they do from time to time, they get back up, and they continue raving about the Bitcoin miracle. And there are now literally millions of such people. To those who have grokked Bitcoin, it's far more than money. It's a new and better model of human life. Now, they don't want to suffer, of course, but the thought of suffering doesn't stop them in their tracks. That is their miraculous opportunity, and they are determined to rise to it. The possibility of suffering be damned. And he says, that's why the Bitcoiners are turning the world upside down and why others, smart and right as they've been, could not. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? 
Now, I lean pretty hard libertarian, and I have for a long time. I've never joined the Libertarian Party, and with all respect to my friends who are part of the Libertarian Party, I'm not telling you that, uh, you know, you're wasting your time. It's just political parties have have really not, uh, they just don't have that much to offer me. And within the Libertarian Party, there's a fair amount of discord and, you know, there's there's some some discontent. But I don't think that uh, Paul Rosenberg is wrong in his assessment that Libertarians believe that by intellectual power alone, we're going to make this happen. And I've wondered sometimes, and people ask, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, people who are, are really wed to the two-party system. Well, if you guys could ever get more than 3% of the vote in a given election, maybe it's people who take you serious. And as much as it pains me to admit this, they have a point. Like it or not, Democrats and Republicans are active. They get out there and they work at what they do. They organize well. I think the Democrats may have a bit of an edge here on the Republicans. But the Libertarians uh, are much more talk than activity. So take that for what it's worth. Feel free to disagree if you want to. I want to bring it back to, you know, out of the realm of, of party politics and more to the realm of, you know, as individuals. How do you know where to spend your time, where it's going to be effective, where where you're actually going to, to have influence? And I submit to you that the answer for that question is probably different for each one of us because our circle of influence, well, it shifts over time. In fact, it could shift from hour to hour when you're on the job, depending on what you do for work. You know, your circle of influence may be very large or it might be diminished compared to what it is when you're in your church congregation or maybe in the company of your family. This is the thing I'd like you to take away, though. If you look around you, you will find that you have far more influence than you have been led to believe. And if you're serious about making impact on the world, I mean, like doing something worthwhile... Start right where you're standing. Use that influence as wisely as you can, and it will soon become habit. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.